Greetings old Haleyburians and members of the wider Haleybury community wherever and whenever you are listening to this From the Archives podcast. This is Keith White from the Class of 62 bringing you the 18th of our regular podcast series which includes audio material from the Haleybury Archives. This month we feature two items. The first, a timely series of interviews recorded last month by Chief Archivist Matthew Wharton where he talked to senior members of the staff about the early impact on the school of the coronavirus pandemic. The second piece is from a 1983 speech night address by Australia's newly successful America's Cup captain, John Bertrand, in which he talks about the value of teamwork. But firstly, over to you, Matthew. Thank you, Keith. COVID-19 has been a significant and historical event, not only for Haleybury, but for Australia and the world. To help document the school's response to the pandemic, I spoke with several members of staff who provided their accounts of the pandemic and explained what it has meant for them as Haleybury staff and as members of the community. We hear first from Deputy Principal Dr Stefan Muller. The huge take-home message for me really is that in some ways in this extraordinary situation, it's been business as usual. If one takes as given that our business as usual is to solve complex problems at a greater scale than anyone else in the country and that we bring teams together with a solution-focused mindset to simply work through the issues as they arise and look ahead to anticipate others and put uh, mitigation and programs and you know, projects in place. So in one sense, the big positive has been that we have the capacity, given how we normally operate, to deal with the extraordinary. Of course, there have been some challenges. And I want to ask you, what has been hard about adapting to life amidst the pandemic? The hardest thing in all this is that as the school's operations change, some of what we deliver has to change and some of the people that deliver it are having to change how they work. And I mean here some of the staff affected already by stand downs the school's been forced to make. Uh, For example, in in the sports coaching base where our winter sports program, of course, is is heavily impacted and can't happen the way it normally would. And the hardest thing here and amongst all the, the solution-focused, problem-solving, you know, operational things that you're holding in your hands people's livelihoods, people's careers. You're responsible when you're making these decisions for the good of the institution and the organisation for people's individual stories. You know, people still have mortgages to pay and people are expecting children and they're having car loans to repay and they're having, you know, outgoings and children to support and relatives to look after. And so in all of this, in all the operational stuff that we do, we are holding people's lives and livelihoods in our hands. And that's something that's inevitable, but something we mustn't ever lose sight of. So what we do, we need to do sensitively and with dignity and graciously and supportively. And remember that that is our ultimate responsibility in all this. That's been the hardest bit, but not for us, but for the people who are directly affected by this, I should say. The transition to online learning has been challenging for all schools, but Halebury did have a number of advantages. Halebury drew on learnings from Halebury International School Tianjin's move to online learning and was well supported by strong learning management systems, explained by Director of ICT, Faisal Zakaria. I guess we, we didn't have a standard platform of how we were going to be doing um, remote teaching or online teaching. We have our learning management system, which is Canvas, uh, which is hosted in the cloud. Yes. That in itself was a godsend because some of the in- other independent schools have systems that were on-premise hosted within the school. Yes. And that proved challenging for some schools because they don't have a very big internet pipe 
for when all the teachers and students decide to come in and use the Gate Learning Management System. For us, with our learning management system Canvas in the cloud, it provides us with high availability. It provides us with a lot of flexibility to scale as well. Teachers across Haileybury were quick to adapt to teaching online, particularly via Zoom. I spoke with two long-serving senior school teachers, Fiona Gontier, Head of Sociology, and Ian Alexander, Head of Units 1 and 2 Biology. Here's Fiona. Students are giving me feedback about things that I'm doing now because of the environment that we're teaching within that they really like. So for example, I had recorded some information in advance onto Canvas in case students had issues with internet at their home so that they could listen to pre-recorded materials. And the students say they love it and they want me to do it all the time. They thought it was really valuable. So if I hadn't have had this forced opportunity, I wouldn't have known that that was actually useful for them. So that's been lovely. And here's Ian Alexander with his thoughts on the move to online learning. It's been quite remarkable to say the least. Um, something that sticks in my mind, probably two things. One is the staff camaraderie. So even though we're stuck in our homes teaching on our computer, um, some staff have really stepped up to the plate and uh, really helping each other in terms of using the electronic sort of way of teaching Zoom, which being an old staff member, I'm not so good at, but you know, some staff members have really stepped up to the plate and been really helpful. I mean, that's one thing. And the other thing that has really super impressed me is all the kids, well, we've only had them for a week, but they've all been super on task. So if we have class at 3.05, then, and I've got 30, or I had 31 students in one class, um, two classes combined, all 31 would be there ready to go. Yes. Um, not an issue. So all of the kids have been on. And they're probably two of the positives that you know, really resonate with me. Haileybury's chaplain, Reverend Kim Groot, has seen firsthand how staff have banded together to support one another. Here are some of her reflections. Well, I think the, the strengthening of the sense of community at Haileybury has been really remarkable. That people have pulled together, seen the common goal and yes. have worked really hard to, to make that happen. Vice Principal Scott Doran has worked with Principal Derek Scott and a team of staff to coordinate the school's response to COVID-19. Whilst the school is faced with many challenges, they are being addressed in direct and positive ways. Here's Scott Doran. We're in fact living in the midst of, of something that will become very real and an often told history in our nation's history, but also in our school's history. So the story that's going to be told by historians in the future of course, depends on how will we rise to the challenges and lead our community today. So what we've tried to have, Matthew, is, a, I suppose, an open mindset in preparing towards understanding what those issues and problems might be. Realistically, it's been about continuing to deliver a world-class education in challenging times and being able to care for our community and its members. Despite the challenges faced, Haileybury's online learning program has been widely celebrated and has attracted the attention of prospective families. Here's Scott. Again, because of the strength of the program that we've put in place, we are continuing to attract interest from boys and girls from other school systems that would uh, be interested in joining us. And again, the, the future looks bright for, for Haileybury. As long as we stick together, Matthew, and, and work through this, be strong with our, our leadership, be generous to those around us, recognise that there's fears and concerns if we look to be generous and support, we're fairly confident that we'll get through this even better, just as we've done in periods of our history in the past. 
As the pandemic wears on, Halary draws strength from its great community and looks forward to the full resumption of its programs as soon as possible. Back to you, Keith. Nice work, Matthew, and a great record for the future. And now it's back in time to December 1983 and the John Bertrand Address. We are honoured to have as our guest of honour this evening, Mr John Bertrand, a yachtsman without equal. I have a list of both his professional and sporting accomplishments. It is sufficient for me to inform you that the winning of the America's Cup was merely the latest, though of course the most memorable but the latest of many, many outstanding achievements. I welcome you, sir, to this speech night, and I invite you to address the gathering. Well, thank you very much for that introduction. Mr. Aikman, Mr. Chairman, distinguished guests, parents, and certainly not last, but very importantly, boys of the Halibur College. It's a great honour to be standing here and talking a little bit about what we achieved in Newport in the United States recently, because I realise just how an important occasion it is to the boys here in being the finale of a, obviously a very, very successful year where there's been a lot of determination, a lot of pride put into their efforts over this academic year. What I'd like to do is give you a, a parallel to what we were, we were about to achieve over a two-year period of application. And what I'd like to try and express, particularly to the boys who are going on to bigger and better things with their ambitions in the future, is to give them some feel for the determination that was instilled in a relatively small group of people, namely the Australia 2 crew, over that long period of time. We started off, as I say, about two years ago. In fact, the America's Cup, led by Mr. Bond, started something like 12 years ago. But the Australia 2 effort, the 1983 bid, started not long after 1980, when Ben Lexon was commissioned to design one boat, or boats plural, to, with the endeavour to win the America's Cup. Something which, in fact, has never been achieved before, and in fact had not been achieved since before the American Civil War. Many hundreds of millions of dollars have been spent in trying to unbolt that trophy from within the rooms of the New York Yacht Club without success. And quite obviously if people had sat down and analytically looked at the possibility of achieving that goal people would quite rightfully say it was an impossible dream. Well, we all know that that's not correct. But it was not an impossible dream, it was a result. The dream came, dream came true as a result of people applying themselves, focusing in on a subject, putting all their efforts and all their determination and concentration into one goal, and that was to win one strange-looking silver mug halfway around the world. We scoured the country for the very best people that we could for the Australia 2 team. And they came from not only within the yachting fraternity, but they came from the rowing fraternity, and they came from all over Australia. We had people from Brisbane, Sydney, Melbourne, Adelaide, and Perth. So it was truly an Australiana event, and it was the cream of the 
sporting elite within and outside the yachting fraternity. We train for four months in Fremantle, another four months in um, Port Phillip Bay against Challenge 12, the Victorian contender. And with all the thousands of miles that we spent with Australia 2 and also Challenge 12, we honed and developed the crew work, the technology, the sails and everything that goes in to moulding a winning effort. But more importantly, we developed a sense of pride within the group, which I personally will never forget and I'll certainly hold dear to me forevermore. We developed a philosophy of winning. And you've got to remember, whenever teams have gone to Newport before, the clear cold facts of it is that they've always lost, they've never won. And our, our whole endeavour with the Australia 2 group was to turn that losing image into a winning image. And I can assure you that's no mean feat when people have a history of losing. So we work very, very hard on the pride and hard on the determination and hard on the courage side of the human endeavour, which as it turned out was, I believe, the key for coming from 3-1 down to going on to win the America's Cup. You notice the, the flag, the boxing kangaroo flag. That was, didn't come from trial and error. It came from the 1980 campaign, where in fact they had a rather anemic looking kangaroo on a rather anemic looking green background used to fly it from the fourth day of Australia 1 and it wasn't a very good sight to behold and Alan Bond in his the type of person he is he said let's send that out to some advertising agents let's instill some pride into that old kangaroo and give him something to fight for well after half a dozen attempts he came back with boxing gloves a rather enlarged chest and a, a very upright stance and that's now the famous boxing kangaroo flag that's not only seen within this country but in fact all over the world. It's typical of the attention to detail of Alan Bond and the people around him. The song that we chose and the men from down under, that represented a lot to what we believed Australia represented. And it was a bouncy tune and to give you a feeling for the immenseness of what we're trying to achieve and how we were trying to instill it into the people around us, not only our own team, but the Americans and our opposition, we went out and bought the, la bought the loudest loudspeakers that we could in Newport, and we put them on our black swan, our tender, 50-foot randall that pulled Australia to everywhere. And whenever we entered the harbour and left the harbour, we made sure that all of damn Newport heard that we were coming and going. <laughs> we wanted to suggest to the Americans, to our friends, that we were here for one purpose and that was to win. Not to represent our great country, certainly not to partake in the social occasion, but it was to win. We had our goals set and we were there for a reason. I was speaking to a fellow the other day that wrote a book about Rod Laver. Rod once said that when he was nearly down and out and the so-called experts would suggest that that was the end and the score was pretty dismal, he would forget about the score completely and he would hit, keep hitting the ball back over the net until it was time to shake hands with his opponent. And it may not be the total attitude that we had in Newport, but it was certainly the type of determination that went through our team. 
when we had our backs to the wall as a result of getting in a position of 3-1 down and fought our way back, it was a group effort, it was very much a team effort. The compatibility within the group was absolutely immense and as the going got tough, that group of people became tougher from within. And I think a reflection on the compatibility of the group that we had, very, very fine individuals, each and one of them, was that I believe that we'll all be lifelong friends forevermore. And that would have been the case, win or lose. So there was a large amount of determination within that group. And it was one of the reasons why we were so formidable when the going got tough. One aspect, one philosophy which we pursued very clearly within our own group of people is that we were very, very concerned about lifting our horizons. And people talk about horizons and the artificial limits that people set. And I've never ceased to be amazed on the four-minute mile, just how long it took to break the four-minute mile. And once that was broken by Bannister all those long years ago, within the next two or three weeks, seemingly dozens of people ran through that barrier. It was an artificial psychological horizon which people set. The doctors and the physicians said it couldn't be done and of course people couldn't do it for so long until an English runner actually blew through that barrier. Our whole key was to lift our horizons to a point not to just be good enough to beat the Americans and win the America's Cup, but to go far beyond that. I have reread many times a book called Jonathan Livingston Seagull, which I hold very dear to me. In fact, Raz and my wife presented it to me just before the America's Cup final. And that little bird, it's a book written about a philosophy of seeking perfection, something which many of us do try and achieve in life. And I believe that so many of the students within the, this room tonight will be achieving when they explore the rest of the world, whatever vocation they, they choose. And Jonathan Livingston sought more and better flight and never really had a horizon. The horizon was limitless. And our horizon was, in fact, our goal was to not only just become better than the Americans, but to become so good, almost impossible as it may appear, to become so good that no one, no opposition, would be able to stay with us. And that may sound a little bit artificial, but I can assure you that was the goal that we were setting ourselves all the time. We were not wanting to limit ourselves with the artificiality of horizons that people set around them own selves. So we want to become world champions. And we want to become so good that even people in 10 or 20 years' time would have a hard time duplicating the finesse and the ability that we sailed our 12-meter yacht. And it was that type of goal setting which I believe made us able to cope with the incredible atmosphere in Newport, the incredible amount of press that was being inundated amongst us and on us. For example, two and a half thousand press passes alone were issued in Newport. This room would be full of press people, for example. And it allowed us to seek our horizons well and beyond what our opposition was setting theirs. And this type of philosophy, I can assure you, really does unburden people. If they're not limited by their own artificiality, they can really do great things. The Australia 2 team are just a bunch of human beings, and of course they're Australians. 
and something which has never been achieved before and I'm very very proud to be associated with that I can assure you so the note that I'd like to leave the boys on is that it really can be done regardless of how impossible that dream is it really can be done you can set your goals and you can go for it and just to bring the little talk back to a sense of reality I'd like to t tell you about a little story a little meeting I had with a little boy amongst about 400 at one of the local schools and I spoke about meeting the President of the United States these kids range from four years old to eight years old and they're in awe about the President and they're in awe about the size and the immenseness of the 12 meter and of course I tried to keep the little talk very very simple so they could understand and more importantly very short so they wouldn't fidget too much and I asked the questions and the little boy in the front put up his hand and he said, Mr. Bertrand, and his big blue eyes looking at me, he said, did you see any butterflies over there? <laughs> so I figured to each his own. <laughs> Thank you very much. Hmm, what an inspiring address, and this only a few weeks after that memorable final race. Don't be constrained by artificial limits. Wise words indeed. On a personal level, I remember John Bertrand as a fellow student at Chelsea Primary School in 1956, before I came to Haileybury in 1957. Even in those days, he and his older brother Lex were sailing out of Chelsea Yacht Club, so he can hardly be described as an overnight success. Interestingly, when Headley Jobling, our headmaster, found out I was applying for a scholarship to Haileybury in 1956, he asked my class teacher to give me some extra coaching in preparation, probably wanting me to go to the school his son Ian, old Haileybury in 1952, had done so well at. I sat the scholarship exam and the rest, as they say, is history. Sadly, Ian Jobling passed away last month. He was an outstanding Haileburyan, a prefect and a talented sportsman particularly on the cricket field. Well, that's it for this 18th From the Archives podcast. The next episode should be coming your way in July. Please remember that your feedback is what keeps us going. So if you've got a comment to make or a story you'd like to tell, please get in touch. This is Keith White signing off From the Archives, Series 1, Episode 18, June 2020. Thanks for listening.